cities do we want to live in? How do we want our cities to be? Cannot be divorced from the question of what kind of people we want to be. What kind of humanity we wish to create amongst ourselves and how we want to create it. And it is that mutual constitution of the city and who we are and what we are that is something which is I think, again, very important to reflect upon. This is The City, an hour dedicated to a critical discussion of urban issues. And welcome to the program here on CITR 101.9 FM, CITR.ca, and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM, CJSF.ca, and available as a podcast at thecityfm.org. I'm Andy Longhurst, and on today's program, I talk in depth with Vision Vancouver Councillor Andrea Reimer as we mark the one-year anniversary of the last municipal election here in Vancouver. You're tuned here, tuned into the city here on CITR and CJSF. This is an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions. Stay with us.
and you're here tuned into the city, an hour dedicated to critical urban discussions, and thanks for being with me. Andrea Reimer was elected in 2002 as a school board member with the Green Party. She joined Vision Vancouver and was elected to city council in 2008. Councillor Reimer was appointed in 2008 as the chair of the city's planning and environment committee and uh, council lead on the Greenest City Action Plan, overseeing Vancouver's efforts to become the greenest city in the world by 2020. And along with six other Vision councillors and Mayor Gregor Robertson, Andrea Reimer was elected in 2011 um, to council, and she is currently chair of the Standing Committee on Planning, Transportation, and Environment, and council liaison for the Greenest City Action Team. She is also a director at the Greater Vancouver Regional District, now known as Metro Vancouver, and is appointed to the city's Family Court, Youth Justice Committee, um, and Urban Aboriginal People's Advisory Committee, as well as the Women's Advisory Committee. And I sat down with Councillor Reimer in July of this year uh, to talk at length about a number of issues. And uh, we talked about neighborhood consultation, um, which has certainly come under fire uh, from different people um, over the last few weeks. We also discussed the controversial uh, Rise Condo Tower in Mount Pleasant, uh, rental housing affordability, and questions of future development um, and the city's development trajectory here in the city. And I start out uh, this interview by asking Councillor Reimer about her current priorities. Now, keep in mind that this interview um, was recorded um, back in uh, July of 2012. Um, so um, certainly a few months, uh, dated by a few months, um, but a lot of this stuff uh, certainly relevant as we reflect on uh, one year um, after the most recent uh, municipal election. So big ones are um, around engagement and community planning. Karina City is always a priority for me, but it really lives in staff now. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, we've done, we set the big goals, um, which are important, right, for a governance body to do. We did a very large-scale community engagement. Um, We have a lot of partner groups, over 170 organizations now, and it lives. (laughs) And staff are every... Literally every day I get updates from staff on some mm-hmm. aspects of that plan. So I still have to monitor um, and, and sort of keep track to make yeah. sure that it's all on track. And occasionally things aren't, right? Like there's things that we're behind on and things, thank God, that we're ahead on. Uh, but I don't have to, I don't have to, what's the word I'm looking for? From a governance and policy perspective, it does not need the same amount of attention as citizen engagement, which yeah. needs the kind of attention that I was putting into Green City three years ago to get it where it is now. Let's right? talk about that. Yeah. Citizen engagement. Yeah, it is, it is a, um, hmm, it is a lot harder than Green City. Like, we know how much, um, it, sorry, it's, it's logistically more challenging. It's outside of the framework of the way governments generally kind of conceive of and implement policy. So Greenest City, we know that if we reduce um, our emissions by a certain amount, that it will have a a demonstrated impact on Mm -hmm. the atmosphere, the environment, the quality of life, right? Engagement doesn't actually work that way. We have done a lot on the quantity side of engagement over the last three years. Mm -hmm. Um, And really... (laughs) Okay, well, it's had a few impacts. It's dealt like 35,000 plus people impacting or inputting into Greenest City. Fabulous, right? Like it's made it a better document. Um, We've had about 10,000 input into the housing plan. It's made it a better document and policy. 
but um, has it changed the way people feel about engagement in the city? Not from what I can tell. From what I can tell, the more engagement we do, the more people, um, I will not say complain, but express a desire to be engaged more, right? How much of it is, I've um, been following the rezone, the past the big rezonings, um, and have spoken at a number of them. Um, True, yes. I'm remembering that. <laughs> Sorry, there's been enough, and the lists have been long enough that yeah. I don't, I my memory for who and, comes And um, I've been a critic, um, but I think, is, is a lot of it having to do with the fact that it's one thing to engage, but another when you feel like you walk in those doors and that decision is largely already made, that people come and feel like, what's the point? Well, there's different, so the rezoning process is a, particular kind of box, right? So when we sit, when we're coming, 90% of what council does is policy and government. So we govern the city and we create policies that hopefully foresee and provide space for most of what you want to do in the city, whether that be cycle or buy food at a food cart or community garden or walk your kid to school safely, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. right? So that's what we do. the rezoning process, and somewhat unique, like civic governments amongst all orders of government, and frankly in the world it's not that common for any order of government to do this. When we're, we do business license hearings, rezonings, um, liquor licenses, we no longer are a policy and governance board, mm-hmm. we're a quasi-judicial panel mm-hmm. that's weighing right. evidence. Um, and I think it's reasonably incredibly frustrating for the public because they come wanting us to make policy on the fly. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they're not viewing this as a, yeah. a judicial hearing where mm-hmm. we're kind of looking at the policy that exists. But what about, like, for the, take the RISE example, and there is that Mount, community, uh, Mount Pleasant community plan, and yeah. a lot of people felt very strongly, including RAMP, that we have this in place. This is a policy yeah. document. See the policy document is in my judicial, quasi-judicial sense. And having sat through, unlike most of RAMP, sat through the planning process, heard what people said when we passed that plan. That one was actually the first one like that. Like all the Mm -hmm. other rezonings we do relate to plans that we weren't here when they passed. So you have people come and say, there was this one we had where people... The plan clear the policy document clearly said seniors housing, but then right. we had these people come and go, Well, we didn't mean those kinds of seniors, we meant right. other kinds. And you're like, Well, how are we supposed to figure out what kind of senior you yeah. meant? It's actually such a great lesson from a policy side. Mm-hmm. When people write policy, be really clear. If mm-hmm. you only mean one kind of senior yeah. or if you have a height in mind, tell us what it is yeah. so that some future council doesn't have Well, to. I guess that would be that would be maybe that's that is takeaway is that's the policy from that is within those documents they need to be very uh, uh, clear about what are the heights what are and I think a lot of it perhaps even a feeling of mistrust because something was put in and then taken out in return so you have artist production space and market rentals and you lose that See, that wasn't, you know, what's so funny is those same people who came to complain we took it out, many of them complained when it was in. So, like, mm-hmm. there is a group that... And a lot of it's about the aesthetics and the tower itself. It was really ugly. And that... And that, that's, that's one argument. That's yeah. one strand. Yeah. And then there's the other strand of, well, you put this in and then you take it out. So they're, like, uh, yeah, absolutely. There's so much going on, and people are coming sometimes to contest anything. 
yeah. um, any change, but then did you see valid arguments? Oh, yes, I heard a lot of valid arguments. So I would say my memory, because I try and keep track of it while people mm. are talking at the public hearing, was that there was this group that comes out to every public hearing and, and says no to everything. Not a formal group, but a, there's about 12 to 15 of them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, their, their opinions are valid, but they don't agree with the policy. So yeah. that's fine. But our job in public, we can't change policy in the middle of a public hearing. It's, yeah. a, it's illegal for us to do it. So from, from a public hearing standpoint, they're sort of over to one side. And I try and keep in mind what they're saying for the next policy discussion we have related to it. And then the other four categories, there was another group on the other side who was like, build whatever you want, whenever you want, however mm -hmm. you want. So he sort of put those, because they're not really paying attention to policy either, right? So in the middle, we're ugly building. Yeah. <laughs> um, mistrust, not, maybe that is the root cause of the mistrust was the changing around where things mm -hmm. go. Although council doesn't, we only hear, we're, we're actually not really supposed to, to pay any attention to it until it gets to us because we're supposed to come to it with a free and open mind and any... Without the knowledge of what the revisions? Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're trying okay. to... Because okay. we could become attached or advocate for one, one of those. Yes. One phase of it. Okay. Yeah, so we stay pretty far out of it. It's really hard when it's like our own sites or the social housing sites, like... Mm -hmm. It's hard to have a free and open mind, and that the casino was really, really challenging. If you mm -hmm. come into that with preconceived ideas about, um, but isn't that inherent? Yeah, like, of how course, can you say you, course, you come yeah. to a hearing and you're going to vote without any context? That seems well, but you can yeah. have context, but you have to have a free and open mind. So your yeah. mind cannot be made up. So you have to. Does that happen though? <laughs> personally, yeah. I mean, I can't speak for everyone because <laughs> yeah. I don't know what goes through their mind. But yeah, no, we don't even talk about these things beforehand, as like yeah. even as a vision caucus, yeah. because it would bias the outcome, right? Okay. So we listen to each. Well, I know I do. The problem is, I would say ninety percent of the people who come are not speaking. The only framework we can discuss in a public hearing is mm -hmm. here is the policy here is how this does or doesn't comply with the policy. Mm -hmm. And sorry, the secondary thing, let's assume it complies with policy, mm -hmm. is the benefit the community derives from this building being built um, equivalent to the impact we think it will have on the community. Right. And most people do not speak to either of those mm -hmm. items tangentially, but they usually speak about how much they hate some aspect of the policy that allows us to consider this, mm -hmm. which is interesting for some future policy debate, but we can't... We cannot change it in on the fly. Let's so. talk about the. Uh, I think anyway, it, you're yeah, hearing my not, frustration, and not, I know yeah, the people absolutely. who come and speak get frustrated. The people who own the property get frustrated. Yeah. It's it's very constraining and a legal process given to us by the province. So fixable um, over a long term, but in my opinion, if we could get the policy better, and Rise is such a great example. Like that policy wasn't even a year old, maybe a year and a bit. Like. So my, my observation now is that what happens is, because I've seen a few of these policies come through from neighborhoods, they can't agree. So that, that mm -hmm. site, they could not agree on a maximum height. Yeah. So rather than agree on one, they said, you know, should be we'll wait, blah, we'll blah. Yeah, and then they come in. I mean, there's no option to not agree. It's, at some point, you're going to have to come to a decision on it. So why, 
if the community wants a voice in that decision, why not have that voice when you're doing the plan as opposed mm -hmm. to trying to battle it out on a public hearing floor? Mm -hmm. And then what gets lost in all that, in my experience, Casino is a great example, um, is the design of the building. Because we can actually make some changes to that in the public hearing process. So during Casino, like let's just say that would have passed, mm -hmm. not one speaker spoke to the design of the building. But and is that, it was yeah. ugly. Like yeah. it was really ugly. But in so much of that, is that somewhat irrelevant? Like we have a housing crisis. Design, I mean, design is important. Don't get me wrong. I'm a urban geography student, so I can appreciate it. But um, at the end of the day, if it's a luxury condo building, it's a luxury condo building. Yeah, I would. There's not a ton of luxury condo buildings that have come through in my time on council. Yeah. There's condos for sure, although most of them, there's no luxury condo selling right now. So I most guess people are. It's a matter of definition, in. right? <laughs> yeah. Well, if you're, it depends on what you. Yeah, it's a matter of definition. If you consider any condo a luxury, then yeah, there's been lots yeah. of condos go through. But most of them are being priced towards middle income earners, right? Because that's what the market wants to buy are they right now. Yes, I don't know. What would you consider a middle income earner? Like someone who You're makes a median income? 48000 in the yeah, city. Yeah, see that. It depends if you're talking household or not. But yeah. they are priced towards middle household incomes in the city of Vancouver because that's what the market's buying yeah. right now. It won't buy... I'm not a real estate person. I ran, I've never yeah. owned anything yeah. in my life. Well, it's not true. I did own a van for about <laughs> a year and slept in it, so yeah. technically owned a house. Maybe let's talk about I, yeah. one of the big criticisms, and this has been um, echoed by the Carnegie Center, is that uh, this council won't define what affordable is. But we have defined what affordable okay. is. What we want, what we haven't defined, and we've asked them to define it. Thank God we didn't accept the definition that was in the staff report. Is social housing, okay. which is different than affordable is thirty percent of your income. Nobody disputes. But sometimes this. that's deployed in staff reports. Um, very loosely and flexibly, and I think that's. A I don't, I don't no? see it that way. Okay. Like it's thirty percent of the income. The question which we haven't grappled with, so the question that, that we're avoiding is, should um, the public, at what threshold should the public of income should the public be providing affordable housing? Right. Mm -hmm. That's the real question. We all agree it's thirty percent. Mm -hmm. I've never heard anyone disagree with that. Mm -hmm. um, but should. Should you and I be worried about people who make sixty thousand dollars a year? Should we be providing affordable housing for them, right? Or is it fifty? Or is it forty? Or is it thirty? And is it household income or individual income? Like these are all, to me, those would be the important questions. And where does social housing kick in? Right. Which is defined actually in city bylaw. There's like a definition in the zoning bylaw, which is, it's government-owned housing. That's the only definition. So it could be government-owned housing for anyone, really, mm -hmm. and it would be considered social housing by by law, by by, by law. Mm -hmm. right? So, uh, so I don't Carnegie and us like we don't. We keep having this argument about well, you have no definition for social or for affordable, and I'm mm -hmm. like, well, we do, but what we don't have is an agreement on the threshold of income at which it matters for government to get involved. Mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so that would be okay. Yeah. Um, do you agree with the argument that more supply of market rentals will bring down prices? Like rental yeah. prices? Rental rates? Uh, not 
No, I mean it can, uh, but it can also have no impacts at all, mm -hmm. right? It depends on what you're doing to the existing market housing. Like if you were knocking down all the existed existing rental housing mm -hmm. and building new market rental, then it would mm -hmm. have a very negative impact, right? Yeah. Like so, there's a lot of policies that impact right. on the rental housing. If you killed the economy in Vancouver or even gave it a significant shock, that would have the most impact on. Right. Like way more than even building social housing, right? So, I mean, there's many, <laughs> mm -hmm. there's many factors that lead to whether or not housing is affordable. Mm -hmm. um, Although supply, yeah. I mean, what makes it unaffordable in Vancouver is to it's the wage stagnation, which we can't, we as a civic government can't do a ton about. What about the living wage campaign? We, it would have very little impact because we, we have very little spending. Mm -hmm. Most of our spend is on our own staff and they all make at least a living wage, if not significantly more than that. We don't do a lot of outside contracting. We don't spend much money. We're a pretty small government relative. But would it, would it not be effective to, if not, like you said, you're saying that you're pretty certain that all your staff are making that? We know. We've done okay. research on it, yeah. Then so why not symbolically sign on? I'm not, I, my opinion, the world doesn't need a lot of symbolism, it needs action. So I'd rather put okay. my time and energy into action, personally. But, but that wouldn't I'd be rather useful. build daycare for our workers who have families, for example, because that would give them the most, that would give them the most impact on whether or not they had available living wage, mm -hmm. right? I'd rather build housing. I'd rather build childcare for people mm -hmm. out there who are on minimum wage, because that would give them mm -hmm. a lot more disposable income than any single mm -hmm. other policy that we could I just want to stick on this, but what about leveraging, using the the city's, so the city signs on, the living wage campaign, using that to really push large employers in the city to sign on to that campaign? How, Is would, there not how would we do that? What what could we do to them? With some political will, some political muster. We could ask them to do, I think they, from what we understand, are better... Uh, one large employer is much more likely to to get another large employer to to do it than we would be. They don't, I mean, public sector is not considered a credible messenger to... So don't yeah. even... Like, well, I mean, it. we could, but given that we have, like, as I was saying, like, I've got 18 hours a day right now, mm -hmm. less, and I lost a bunch of time. But knowing that, where is my time best spent? Knowing I can't work mm -hmm. 24 hours a day. And even then, it's only yes. another six hours, right? So I don't, I'm not opposed to living wage at all. I just, we don't have a lot of outside contractors. We're almost all internal. Like, where can our time be best spent to mm -hmm. get the best outcome? I'm glad there's people out there working on living wage, mm -hmm. though. And I think the minimum wage campaign, which took, would take us a decade to get it up, mm -hmm. um, it wouldn't, <laughs> we'd be waiting another decade if we didn't have the minimum mm -hmm. wage campaign, right? So, okay. so there's the wage side, right? Yep. Um, which is largely about federal and provincial policies. And, well, international, but our federal governments and provincial government mm -hmm. decide how much those are going to impact us mm -hmm. as everyday Canadians mm -hmm. and British Columbians and Vancouverites. Um, and then there's the cost of housing. We have, um, we don't have land, we have air, <laughs> so that's where we can build. We can build into air. If we were a city that had a lot of land, we would have that option available to us, but then we'd have to think about the transportation costs associated with that. Uh, so trying to figure out how to bring down housing prices. The other challenge is that um, 
we don't have a lot of tools. I mean, I hear people asking us to put rent caps in provincial. I hear people asking us to like do this or that or whatever. These are all provincial policy areas. But that certainly, we don't the city have. has has again that political ability to push for those changes. And we have been. Okay. We've passed quite sweeping requests to the province. We meet with them. We've done affordable housing reports. We've set up advocacy campaigns. <laughs> like it's. I mean, what about somewhat and the, responsive, yeah, and this not, is something that I yeah. keep coming back to. The city has um, fairly robust powers in terms of land use controls um, and zoning powers. Um, you can send a really pretty stark message if you say, "No, we're not going to approve this rezoning unless uh, we there's a covenant on, you know, for example, using Stir as an example, we're actually going to set this range, and that's going to be within a covenant." rather than leaving it open and flexible. A range of? Of the rental rates. What would that? So, for example, currently with STIR, you've got the developer putting forward the proposed uh, rents um, upon completion. Yeah. And so the, the Granville Street... Uh, so you seem to actually write those in. Could be possible. I'd have to ask legal. Mm -hmm. I would be surprised if a it were possible to write it into the covenant, and mm -hmm. even more surprised if it would have a positive policy impact over sixty years. Because trying to predict what affordable, like how or, you or write like, it? and obviously there needs to be more thinking towards this, but create a way to actually have it, um, you know, tied to inflation or tied to some way that it recognizes change, but in a way that actually recognizes that affordability is based on people's income and not the market. Well, the market is also based on people's income. It is, in a way, but, the, the, but the real estate and income. property market is very much different from people's incomes. Uh, the, the property ownership is? The rental is not that... Mm, I think it is. They're pretty close. <laughs> I mean, the, the drag, the reason rental hasn't, the cost of rental hasn't gone up as much as property ownership has, yeah. like that graph goes like that, the yeah. cost of housing for an owner versus yeah. rental, which is pretty steep, but the drag on it is income because there is, there is a, there's a point where the market just won't bear anymore. And I'm not an economist or really, like, I don't. No, no I recognize I'm a renter that. and I, I observe it from that end of it. And certainly what I've heard from experts in both, land economics and rental housing and the policy that actually works or doesn't work is that market uh, income definitely has a huge impact on rent. What are your thoughts on STIR? In terms of a policy? In terms of a policy and in terms of a mechanism to, um, as council has stated, creating, and I, th I think the language is in there, affordable rental housing. Uh, well, STIR is gone, right? It died yeah. in or the December, but you mean the next iteration? Yeah, the secured market. Uh, I don't... I thought STIR was very much worth doing because there is a rental crisis, and there has mm -hmm. been since the day the federal government... Well, there was an inevitable crisis since the day the mm -hmm. federal government pulled out of supporting rental housing, and it's come to pass, and bank... Actually, the... It's interesting that an FCM report was released last week, a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. maybe even a month ago, sorry, a little. At some point while I was in the hospital, I read a report from FCM. Um, the crisis exists in every major city in Canada now. We were first because we're the most land constrained, but there is essentially the same basic phenomena playing out in every city mm -hmm. in Canada. 
So it is, um, it's hard not to point to those federal policies, right? Like even provincial has mm -hmm. some impact, but not even Montreal has the problem and they have probably the best provincial housing policies in the country. Yeah, I would mm -hmm. say they probably have the prevent best Much cheaper rents. Yeah, a lot of that actually was about the economy, right? Like in the 90s, there was nothing going on there. I remember living there in the late 80s, early 90s, and everything was rent because everyone was getting out of town because of the threat of separation, right? Mm -hmm. And it's taken 20 years for their economy to recover. So it is, like one of the strategies to making housing affordable is definitely killing the economy. It doesn't, it doesn't do much for quality of life for people's real incomes, but it is, um, when you look across North America, well, English-speaking North America, because Mexico has a whole different set of policies, mm -hmm. um, but when you look across the U.S. and Canada, the cities with the most affordable housing are the ones with, it's not about policy, it's about economy. So in your opinion, is... Sorry, you were yeah. asking about STIR. So yeah. STIR was worth yeah. trying, because yeah. in the absence of, I mean, the federal government was doing, it's 2008, right? We had a... A minority government, but a minority conservative government, and no sign that the other parties were going to get it together to unite behind, you know, social housing policy or social policies in general. Um, provincial government was doing, had no, you know, was investing in supportive housing, but not even social housing. Um, so we, why not, right? I mean, we're not going to lose anything by trying to do it. Um, other than not knowing whether it would work or not. So uh, it did great in terms of, it built more rental housing than we had in a really long time. Well, decades, right? Two decades. Uh, in terms of cost of that rental housing relative to other ways we as a city could build it, um, the, the like learning that building like a condo and throwing some in, that is not a very cost-effective way to build rental housing from all indications. So, okay. yeah, that was the main learning from it. Yeah. And one of the reasons it got taken out of rise, right, is that the public didn't support it. The public who was showing up at the, well, at least from what staff said, because again, we don't, we're not there in real time, mm -hmm. but the public who was showing up at the open houses said, don't put stir units in here. Um, and then on top of that, they were really expensive. You could buy a lot more housing off-site. For the same amount of money, you could build a lot more housing somewhere else than in a concrete tower that wasn't purpose-built rental. So look, out of that, just going going to that quickly, in that CAC, the two point, sorry, the 1.75 went to it's housing. housing. Yeah. Um, but let's be honest, that's not going to buy much. No, it's no. not, because land is expensive in Vancouver, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could have taken away the four or whatever for art, uh, yeah. but the community plan, if you're mm -hmm. going to honor community engagement, the community plan identified arts as their priority, not mm -hmm. housing, right? Not to say they don't want housing, but arts to them was mm -hmm. the highest priority, and that's what the CAC contribution attempts yeah. to reflect. Just going back to stir and supply-side mechanisms to, to create rental stock, um, is the DCL waiver, something that sets somewhat of a worrisome precedent? Do you have concerns with that? Or In terms of what precedent for what? Essentially as a way to encourage developers to build rental housing, is the DCL waiver, the development cost levy waiver, um, is that what it's going to take, essentially? Uh, no, what it will take is the federal government coming in with a rental tax credit. It's why we're. But what if that never happens? 
I don't know. Uh, what if it never happens? I'm not a pessimist by nature, so it's hard for me to sort of contemplate that. What if it never happens? Uh, technically, I, I don't know. Because it's not, not, certainly I'm not, not going to happen. I'm not a speculator by nature. Uh, I'm yeah. not a... I actually don't know. Yeah. Like, I'm not willing to say that. There have been some surprising policies uh, brought in by both sides, right? It, it wasn't mm-hmm. the conservatives that killed the rental tax credit. It was uh, liberal, right? So it's not... Some of the best environmental policy Canada has was created by a conservative government. So Not this one. <laughs> no, but, you know, you never know. It's all, it's all can be very surprising. Yeah. I'll try to wrap up quickly. Um, I think, though, that, uh, I mean, you, you don't get what you don't... And that would be part of my argument for the, the STIR program originally, is that you, there's nothing to be gained by sitting on the sidelines and complaining about the way things are and not trying to do something, right? Yeah. So... Um, I would much, even sitting in the front row and complaining about the way things are without trying to do something. So to me, it was more important to try and fail than to, um, and I'm happy to take the criticisms for trying to build housing. Mm-hmm. To me, that I would hate to think like five years from now um, that we didn't try because mm-hmm. because any, I, I can't, I mean, the cap thing is interesting, the covenant, but as you say, there's a lot to work out about it, mm-hmm. right? Like. I could totally foresee. But is is not this the the opportunity? <laughs> well, I think what we would lose, we cannot write a covenant that needs to be renegotiated. So, mm-hmm. what to do that? From my understanding of the way the law works, because one of the things, for example, um, Stratos can make um, rental illegal strat- under mm-hmm. the Strata Act, which is yeah. If there was one provincial law that I would just want a magic wand for the strata act would be one because it is a huge like it's also had a huge impact on rental housing not just that law but a whole whack of things about the strata act prior to the strata act existing the only way for developers to build a multi-unit building was as rental because they couldn't they either had to own it only one person could own it right Mm -hmm. so if only one person can own it then it's either going to be a very large private residence Mm -hmm. or a rental building, right? So that was another, it was the rental tax credit and the existence of the Strata Act Mm -hmm. that kind of killed rental housing in this city. So um, we occasionally, like when we, I'm trying to think of an example of when, um, I actually think it probably is part of RISE. So RISE will be a Strata titled building. Mm Assuming mm-hmm. so, um, we will pass a bylaw at some point that says it's okay to to stratify this building. I wanted to put a covenant on that. Talk to the legal department for putting a covenant on that said, and you can never refuse to rent those units. It's not to say you have to rent mm-hmm. them. It's just to say that you can't, mm-hmm. as a strata, refuse that. And is that possible? And they came up with examples of where it actually might not be desirable or something, or if the Strata Act disappeared, you actually would break the covenant down the road. Um, so, and then you have no covenant, right? So if you have this covenant saying these rental units are protected for 60 years of the life of the building, and they have to have this stipulation, let's say the market actually, let's say real wages jump up by 20% over the next 30 years, Minimum wage has increased by, what, 20% in the last year, right? Like, it is technically Mm -hmm. possible, Mm and I have to believe that the work we all do is has some impact, right? That eventually things do change, and that eventuality may be five years down the road. Could be three, could be 30, right? Absolutely. So um, if 
you could create a situation where you actually have these rents that are coded in and no way to change them, or you take the covenant off, that would get rid of the rental as well, right? Like you can't just change part of a covenant, you have right. to take, yeah. So I would want to understand that really well before we put something in place. Just going like on that same, same topic, um, in many parts of the U.S., um, there is you know policy of um, affordable housing dispersion. So you're requiring a certain percentage of units in new developments to have this many units at affordable rental rates based on 30% of people's income. And 30% of who, which people? Household income but of people that are renting. Right, but there's people renting... You have many different houses. Like my household income is probably different than and yours. You'd, and you'd different. have, like, yeah, it, so it's often worked out in, that. like, the lowest, you know, quintiles. Okay. Right? So there are ways to, to right. do all but of this. but they decided that. Like, it'll be the lowest or the, or the two lowest. Yeah, exactly, right? Okay, so they actually have just, because it's not, for example, 30% of income is very, yeah, the entire absolutely. spectrum is, is... all over the place, yeah. absolutely. But there are ways to do it, and, like, what about something like that in Vancouver where you want to do a condo development, you're going to have to have this percentage of your units uh, as rentals and renting them to people in the lowest two quintiles um, at 30% of their household income. It might be possible. I don't know legally how we do it because yeah. we're, we're not, the U.S. Constitution is very different. The yeah. cities have rights we don't have. That's Absolutely. why they can ban yeah. this Absolutely. and put this yeah. in and we have none of those yeah. abilities, right? If it were, <laughs> it could technically be possible. Yeah. It's hard to have an opinion on it without knowing if we yeah. can do it, right? But like these, I, mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at well, is like these do, are the like kind Camby's of things. Well, we do like Canby's corridor. It is 20%. It's inclusionary zoning, right? Yeah. So Canby corridor does require 20% of every yeah. new rezoning to have rental in it, right? Because but, that is the legal but authority. But set at the market, right? Yes. Yeah. And that is the legal authority we understand ourselves right. to have. Right. I would be really interested to see this, um, to understand your perception of how different the market is from affordable mm -hmm. because I don't well for example so with 1401 <laughs> yeah. um, I just ran some some numbers on the ranges that were provided yeah. from um, in the staff report obviously yeah. from the developer from um, Gillespie um, and these ranges so what I did is there's a range for you know studio one bedroom or two bedroom yeah. I took the midpoint of each of these ranges and um, based on what the median, and then I went to the actual census tract for that West End area, of which 1401 Comox is located within, um, and took the median household income. Okay. Um, and then from that, um, took a look at what percentage um, of household income would be required okay, for that's, each. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. And so... So studio, um, and this was a letter submitted to um, to council. I went to the hospital. Yeah, no, I know, so I, I know. Um, and I'm trying to recall off yeah. the top of my head, but I can certainly send it to you. But um, studio, the midpoint, I think, for median household income would be around like 33%. So not terrible, but your household has to be pretty damn small <laughs> for a you know for a four hundred square foot studio. Because um, I did yeah. like not rise um, 
the last one we did before I went into the hospital. Oh, Christ. Um, I do do it, and yeah. it's often actually, and I'm not saying, yeah. I really don't want to argue that the concept of market rental is always yeah. affordable for the first or second quintile. Yeah. In fact, in my opinion, I would much rather focus on supporting the first, well, fifth or first, depending yeah. on yeah. how but the yeah. lowest quintile, um, because that is, <laughs> well, although the problem is the second quintile tends to be renting the housing that was always intended to be for the first quintile because they can't, well, they can get ahead by, yeah. a little further ahead by paying a little less, less rent, right? And, you know, I made 28 grand, well, no, by the time I got onto council, I was making about 32 grand a year. My husband was making about before taxes, so mm -hmm. 47 between the two. So you're both. right at the median yeah. for the city of Vancouver. Well, no, because we have a kid, so suddenly we drop okay. back down again, but whatever, right? Yeah. So, um, but we were living in a 250 square foot basement apartment for three years, because that's, mm -hmm. well, at that time I would have been making closer to 24,000, and he wasn't making anything, so yeah, we were well mm -hmm. below the... Well, the median would have been, yeah. but yeah. you know, yeah. we were we were supporting three people off that income. We were paying four hundred a month, so what is that? Forty eight hundred a year, twenty four thousand. So yeah, mm -hmm. but it's not. I mean, that's the other problem with this thirty percent. The seventy percent of twenty four thousand is not not a lot of money to eat and transport three people around with, yeah. um, whereas seventy percent of 48,000 is a lot more to do that with, right? Yeah. So that's the other challenge I have and why things like wage stagnation really yeah. worry me. Yeah, well, just, just to finish that off, yeah. like what I found was obviously as you increase in the number and the amount of space or the size of the units mm -hmm. for 1401 based on the, the proposed uh, rate rents, um, it became increasingly beyond, you know, the 30% benchmark up to even 76% for a three-bedroom. Right. Um, so you have to be, you know, fairly, you know, fairly well off. Not you're still very middle class, um, but if your household income, um, but if you need and have a family that requires three bedrooms, you're obviously going to have to dedicate a huge amount of your resources if you're at the median income or below, obviously. So. But if we can build yeah. 2,000 rental units that get, I don't know, I'd say roughly 3,000 people because there's not, they are trending. That was the other big mm -hmm. learning from Stir is they really trend studio one bedroom and there's got to be two and three bedroom because it's families who mm -hmm. get the most hammered by this yeah. equation. Um, well, I mean, everyone gets hammered, but families have like... It's a matter of degree. Yeah. You're, you're not going to get anything if you can't provide housing for families. So, and families, um, child care costs about the same as rent every month for one kid. So, um, you know, if you have two kids and you're paying rent, you are well beyond 100% of your income. So most people just stay home, right? And then that causes other problems. Um, so if you can build 2,000, 3,000 people housing, even in that lower middle class, middle class zone, and keep them out of the older housing stock, which is generally the below market rental stock in Vancouver. And that's what you can do. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you want to do that, right? Versus those 3,000, 2,000 units, you can probably build maybe four or 500 subsidized units for that. Mm -hmm. um, 
maybe, maybe yeah. closer to 400. I would rather, I would rather keep 3,000 people in the older housing stock, the cheaper older mm -hmm. housing stock, and be able to impact that many lives with the money we do have, rather than do nothing. Are you concerned that we're losing existing affordable stock to renovations and yes. conversions? Yes, and that's not uh, conversions. No, because we have the rate of change bylaw. So is that adequate enough, though? Um, you know, the challenge there is the older housing stock. That was. Somebody said in some forum I was at, we need to build more old housing stock now. And it's true, right? The problem is we can't. We lost three decades because of the rental tax credit being like, there has been no no, well, no new stock built in the most of uh, the 90s and the last two decades, three decades, sorry. So there will be no old stock coming online mm -hmm. for three decades. So what happens is the really old stuff, the 60s, 70s stuff, is getting converted and the rents go from like five decades old <laughs> to mm -hmm. suddenly modern, right? Mm -hmm. That's having a huge impact on it. But we can't, again, there's nothing, we cannot, that isn't even a rezoning, right? If somebody wants to rip open a building and renovate it, that's all comes under provincial guidelines, this, which we have passed motions about and advocated about and met this with This city MLAs council, about. though, in the 70s passed yeah. a citywide bylaw banning conversions. Right, and the rate of change came in in 2004, yeah. and it's all its all there. We can't control the price. Like, that's yeah. the problem. Yeah. Um, just to continue on that strand of thought. Um, so you can't convert now without replacing the housing. Like that, unless it's above. But and it we're can be trying a different, to, I mean, the, the rental rate. Right, right. because we don't, yeah. we don't control, yeah. that's all Residential Tenancy Provincial, Act, yeah. right? So, um, the, uh, sorry, there was an important piece about this. I was just going to... Oh, there are a couple loopholes in the rate of change and the mm -hmm. conversion bylaws, which are above um, commercial, so we're trying to close those right now. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple zoning areas that don't count right. and increasingly have come into play in the 70s and even in the 2004 people living above it wasn't that common there weren't a spaces, lot of yeah. people doing that but now because you have like this the classic 90s form of development like along broadway where you have one floor of commercial downstairs and then four or five floors upstairs mm -hmm. right you start to get into a fair it has a lot of impact yeah. on people right? so <laughs> jody made the comment that we need to you know we need to build Somebody said, you, we need to build old stock, right? Yeah. And in Vancouver, um, our developers building at, at what may not be, you know, that we can have an argument or disagree about what is luxury or what is high-end, but um, the fact that the preferred form of development in Vancouver is the tower in many cases for large rezonings and redevelopments. Apparently, yes. Yes. And you know why apparently it is? It's because people like to buy things in towers. So it's not the planners right. or the developers, it's the people who buy things. So I guess my... Not being a person who's bought anything, yeah. I, I, I can take or leave towers, but I'm not yeah. here to represent my opinion. I'm yeah. here to represent the but public's I guess opinion. With that, so is, you know, is vision... We've had a pretty robust debate recently. The, the street had a, you know, the cover page on 
you know, Sullivanism versus the, the ideas of Jane Jacobs, or... Uh, I missed that one. Yeah, okay. It's great, I'll have to look that one up. But the idea that, you know, we seem to think that towers is the only way to build density, and it's, one, construction is really expensive for towers, mm-hmm. if you're carving out a ton of earth to build parking. Um, concrete is really expensive, Rebar, yeah. all of these things, the structure itself. The price, the stir report, sorry, I interjected yeah. for a minute, but the price per unit was like, mm, I have to look it up again, but it was like 10 times more expensive in concrete. But I'd never seen that analysis for ownership, but I'm guessing you start to run into that problem. Yeah. Too. But I think, I mean, developers can afford to do that because they know it's, strat- that it's going to be stratified, right? That's the, that's the logic. They just extract it back right. out of the exactly. So, paying for it. Um, with that said, and Again, I also want to ask you to comment on the interim report, but um, do we, does council and does Vision need to send a message or should send a message that the tower is not the only form of development that is going to address housing issues? I think we, okay, well, obviously we haven't sent it strong enough if you haven't heard it, but um, Canby Corridor has a couple towers, but it is primarily mid-rise and low-rise development, right? Mm -hmm. The Mount Pleasant plan, three tower sites, the rest of it will be mid and low-rise, and those are the two plans we've passed as a council, What about, I mean, Marine Gateway, I guess, would be the exception? It's one tower, right? So the Marple plan, I would be very surprised if that community said that they would want a lot of towers. Transit-oriented development is a, I mean, it's it's a policy of ours, but there aren't transit stations all over the city, right? I mean, yeah. maybe it'd be great if there were, but um, I don't know how you conscionably spend $2 billion on a concrete, poured, rapid transit fixed link system and not build some, you know, density mm-hmm. nodes around stations. Yeah, no, I would find that very hard yeah. to do, right? Um, but I can't imagine why you'd build towers all the way along, <laughs> right? Like, that would be a lot. What about... What about the reality that towers are not actually a green form of development? Yeah, you know, it's funny. I read a lot about buildings and forms of development mm-hmm. that are aren't green. Um, first off, you have to take... There's, there's three things, right? There's housing. There's the form of housing. There's the energy going into mm-hmm. however you're heating and cooling it and lighting it. Um, and then there's transportation. So you can have the greenest building in the world built in Langley, and it just lost all of its... Greenness because the housing, well, housing affordability and transportation go together too, right? So energy, housing, transportation are the three kind of mm-hmm. things. Um, towers and life cycle analysis. So you have to look at, mm-hmm. you know, the life cycle of the concrete and stuff. Towers are no better or worse than um, wood frame. Um, all things being equal, right? So if a tower, if a wood frame house has a gas fireplace, which is by far and away the single largest um, offender, energy Mm -hmm. waster in a Mm -hmm. tower building, uh, then it will be every bit as bad as the tower building on that front, plus they're larger, so you just lost on the square footprint that Mm -hmm. it's taking up. Plus, it's probably further away from transfer, rapid transportation, so you just lost on that too. So suddenly it's become very ungreen, right? Um, but a tower full of those really ridiculous gas fireplaces. Um, and all glass. Yeah, and all glass. Well, in our in our environment, actually, it doesn't really... Okay. It, it's not as big a deal as it might be in L.A. or Toronto or 
a really cold environment, right? So, yeah, no, we've done pretty intensive energy audits on mm-hmm. our high-rises, and it is all about those bloody fireplaces. I'm forgetting the amount, but it's over 50% of the energy use in those things is those fireplaces. And mm-hmm. I could give you a long reason for why that is, but it probably would seem tedious. I'm going to quickly go back to yeah. RISE, because in that there were 324 or there are planned, to, I should say, planned to be 320 uh, parking stalls based on that rezoning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then following that, uh, the approval by council, um, it was proclaimed to be a transit-oriented development. Mm-hmm. Um, is that somewhat disingenuous? Mm, no. no. Do you, you don't think of Broadway as a transit corridor? I do, but it becomes okay. a question of you have all of these parking stalls, you have a stratified or planned, you know, condo building. Mm-hmm. Um, How many parking stalls would you put in for the commercial and residential? I would say if we're going to be ambitious, let's not build parking. See, I'm with you on that, but I um, have yet to convince a neighborhood that that's a good idea. It's not, I mean, the developer is quite happy not to build the parking yeah. stalls. Um, it's the neighbors who And then, and, their and then I would over. say if that parking's not being built, um, there should be ways and should be some framework to ensure that if, it, if there are rentals, that rentals are not, that they're not essentially taking the benefit of not putting the parking in and also just... Well, stirring yeah. parking relaxations. Yeah. yeah. But no, again, there's no definitive way to ensure that rate, rents are at a certain rate. And that's my concern, is that you don't have any, you don't have a framework, you don't really know what you're getting. You know you're getting market rentals, but you don't know the rates you're getting them at. Okay. And that's so like 1145. Like, you think the city would be a more effective if we had some legal way to regulate Absolutely, absolutely. Hmm, that's interesting. Most residents, like, by far and away, mm-hmm. like, vast majority want us out of housing, not getting further in by regulating it, but that's interesting. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think... It's uh, this, I'm not... I'm it's not a, it becomes it. somewhat of an ideological debate as yeah. to whether market or, uh, you know, state intervention addresses these issues, and I think at the end of the day, you look at a lot of you know, Scandinavian countries with, you know, very interventionist states mm-hmm. who are intervening in the, the, the land market and you have affordability. Um, it's not perfect, mm-hmm. I'd be the, for the first to admit, but um, the market, I think, is not, <laughs> it's not going to be... Oh, that wasn't the argument. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. It wasn't ideological. It's a question of which level of government. So do you yeah. want Vancouver having one set of rental rules and Burnaby having another? Like, is that the most effective way to do I it? I don't think it's ideal, but I think ultimately... Or maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know that I would... It seems quite, quite inefficient and mm-hmm. potentially quite... And inefficiency tends to breed extra costs for everybody, right? Yeah, no, and I agree. And it's this yeah. debate about you and know confusing. Metro Vancouver not having enough enough teeth to actually to really create the change it needs to and transform the region in a way. Yeah. Um, so I I totally agree with you. I think we need to see across the board um, some standardization. But I, I guess my point being, how are we to get there if the city of Vancouver doesn't have the ability to regulate in a way that it needs to or to intervene in the market, um, but things keep getting worse. 
Honestly, I mean, I guess I'd have to think it through a little bit more, but my, because I'm thinking, well, do I want the province to regulate housing simply because they always have, right? Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> given the way the taxation and legal authorities exist in the country, mm -hmm. um, I would really want the province doing it. Like, they have, they have if they, if they base their, they have all the power and none of the responsibility. Well, you're not going to see anything get better, right? Mm. I mean, that's part of the part of the problem right now is we pay the price as cities. And that's a conversation with uh, Vision Vancouver Councillor Andrea Reimer as we mark the one-year anniversary of the 2011 municipal election. And we're out of time um, for this week's edition of the city. And you can find this as a podcast at thecityfm.org. Again, thanks for tuning in here on CATR 101.9 FM and syndicated on CJSF 90.1 FM. We'll be back next week with more critical urban discussions. How much do you know about bikes? Everything? Perfect. Nothing at all? Even better. At the UBC Bike Kitchen, you can use our space and tools to do your own bike maintenance, get one-on-one -on -one instruction on how to fix your bike yourself, or drop your bike off for us to repair. You can also buy a fully refurbished, guaranteed used bicycle, or a variety of new and used parts and accessories. The Bike Kitchen is UBC's non-profit, student-owned, full-service bike shop. We're located in the basement of the Student Union Building. Just look for the stairwell on the north side of the sub across from Gage Towers or search for the UBC Bike Kitchen on Facebook. Stop by the Bike Kitchen and then get riding. Right